Chris and Chris talk movies. Hello and welcome back to podcast. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Chris Ferry, and of course, this is my co-host. My name is Chris Huddleston. And today, we are both very excited to be talking to you about the John Carpenter horror classic. Is it a classic? I don't know. It's kind of a classic. In the mouth of madness. Absolutely mad. The riots began because the stores could not meet the demand of Sutter Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. Who's the guy that writes horror books? You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a setup. I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. This is a map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. you have a synopsis mr huddleston i do as you said this is directed by john carpenter and it stars sam neil julie carmen jurgen pruch now i'm probably mispronouncing that charlton heston david warner and some other people uh when a horror novelist sutter kane goes missing insurance investigator john trent scrutinizes the claim made by his publisher and endeavors to retrieve a yet-to-be-released manuscript and ascertain the writer's whereabouts. Accompanied by the novelist's editor and disturbed by nightmares from reading Kane's other novels, Trent makes an eerie nighttime trek to a supernatural town in New Hampshire. And this was, I don't know if we said this or not, this this came out in 1995. I had seen this a time or two before, but you had not seen this, right? Correct. Okay, what did you think? Um, well, I connected with the subject matter. Um, I was a big Stephen King, uh, reader. There was a point in my life, you know, when I was 15 or something, I had read everything that Stephen King had ever written. I just really connected with it. So, and the Sutter Kane character in this, they even say, you know, like, forget about Stephen King. This guy's even more popular. It's, the the book covers are clearly evocative of Stephen King, and it's 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 clearly drawing on the popularity and the darkness of of that genre of you know horror fiction. Um, and that combined with a kind of a Lovecraft, um, I want one of the things that I love the most about Lovecraft was 
this idea of madness that something could be so evil or so alien or so otherworldly that it breaks your mind. Um, and I think the love, the Lovecraft story, is it in the mountains of madness where mm -hmm. we learn about Cthulhu and all of these things that sort of, I know I'm, I don't, I've never read, sadly, I've never read any Lovecraft. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, the the title here they're definitely playing off of in the mountains of madness i don't know if that's where cthulhu was introduced or not have you ever read any lovecraft yeah and is it kind of hard to read yeah yeah and i think after i came to it after stephen king mm -hmm. and i think that um whatever you say whatever you think about stephen king and and the content that he writes uh, he has just got a wonderful way with the word on the page. His characters spring to life and they're they're very specific and they're very engaging and they they feel very human. And um I I like even the stuff he writes that isn't horror. I mean, I connect to it because I dig uh, for as much as I really stay away from horror films or stayed away from them as a kid. Uh, somehow reading it and it being a product of my imagination made me feel less um, at risk somehow. Like it mm. was more my own thing than the vision of somebody else and the jump scare. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get enough of it. Well, Lovecraft is a little uh, clunkier for me on the page, certainly when you compared it to Stephen King's writing. And some of the concepts just don't seem to weather time or the as you know the popular imagination evolves over time but now i'm not saying don't go read lovecraft by all means do but i you know i i didn't tumble into lovecraft's work in the way that i did stephen king mm -hmm. but you know that but there's clearly first of all the title uh, in the mouth of madness and th there is this idea of a, a a a scope of evil a reality altering vision of evil that is chaotic and tentacled and for those of you watching you can see this sort of painting behind me these sort of quasi-human monstrosities but I, I really liked the way this film um tapped into some of that stuff you know, there were freakish, there's body horror where there's freakish transformations. It didn't, um, well, let me, let, before I get too in the weeds, um, I liked that the core of this film is the premise that reality is somehow subject to our collective belief. So the only reason that the world is as we know it is because that's how we all kind of collectively believe it is. It's it's a waking dream in which we are all the architects collectively. Um, and then this horror writer sort of, it's not clear to me, either loses his mind or begins to believe in his own fiction or really taps, is contacted by evil on the other side of the veil. And wherever it initiates... Sam Neill is a skeptic who is investigating, trying to get to the bottom of this sort of hoax and ends up, I mean, spoiler alert, we spoil these, um, ends up kind of losing his mind and coming to believe that he is, in fact, 
the product of this dark realm and also one of its architects, right? He loses his mm -hmm. mind, basically. Yeah. We, we follow him in the descent into madness. Um, I watched this movie very late and I was very tired. And I, I think that I would have enjoyed it more if I came to it like I don't I didn't enjoy it enough to watch it again. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I think if I watched it again, I would get more out of it in the second viewing. Um, I felt like it there were parts of it that felt sort of stitched together to me in ways that kind of took me out of the movie. But, you know, Sam and I think Sam Neill doesn't I think he's playing a, an American character and he's very much a British actor. I mean, he, he never, definitely has an accent in this. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, I feel um, like from scene to scene, there's times when he's sort of trying slips to in and out of it where they didn't say, you know, you know, any, any reference to him being British. And mm -mm. I don't know, stuff like that is distracting to me. Like, I don't care. He could have been a British guy that's just working for an American publishing. Who cares? Mm -hmm. But, there was this sort of effort to have him like lose the accent some of the time and other times not. I don't know, but I don't want to be a wet blanket about it. Let's you've seen it many times. So what are your thoughts on this film? Yeah. So I saw this when it originally came out on video and then saw it probably another time, you know, caught it on a movie channel or something some, sometime over the years. But I, I remembered just the gist of this, but a lot of it I had, and that's the thing with, you know, I can watch a movie and a couple of years later, I've forgotten most of it. So, um, uh, I really, Sam Neill is, is an actor that I really love. I, he's, I, I can't recall ever a time that, you know, there have been movies that he's been in that maybe I didn't think were so great, but I can't ever recall a time that I didn't enjoy him as a performer in a film and he's very good in this, you know, he's, he's maybe, you know, he's pretty, uh, I don't know that he's super likable, you know, the character that he's, he's kind of a jerk, I guess you could say. Maybe. He's kind of a jerk. Um, yeah. He's sort of a skeptic. He's pretty salty, but he's not like you really hate him. I don't think in this film, um, you are, you're on his team for sure. I mean, that's one thing that Sam Neill has. I think, for those of you who don't get a picture in your head of who Sam Neill is, maybe you've seen Jurassic Park. He is the central lead in Jurassic Park. Um, and he does skepticism very well. Mm -hmm. right? But he also he's there's something in there's something sort of suspicious and wry in his look. Naturally, he can his humor can be very dry, but there's an easy warmth to him right below the surface that he's very good at letting rise to the surface. And I think it was interesting and smart casting of Spielberg to put him in there opposite two kids because he, in we're talking about Jurassic park now for mm -hmm. the moment. His, he was a played a character that was uncomfortable slash disliked children and mm -hmm. found himself try you know, needing to care for parenting basically these two kids to try and save their life in a realm that he knew a lot about he knew a lot about dinosaurs um you know and the kids are spielbergian kids they're messy and you know they don't know how to pay attention you know they're kids mm -hmm. spielberg's view you know they're always getting into shenanigans these kids you know and and sam neill was great casting in that i think it, it chimes pretty well in this movie too um 
he this is clearly this character this sort of stuff is the he talks about this he's like oh isn't he the guy that writes that horror crap you know like mm-hmm. he isn't he's a pragmatist is not a guy that gets into the stuff he starts reading the books and he's having these jarring nightmares um which is one thing i sort of wish you see it a lot in movies somebody has a scary nightmare and oh they wake up right i i almost wish more time had been spent directorially working with sam neil in tracing that process of unraveling right we sort of see him skeptical 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 now he's scared now he's nuts mm-hmm. and and that's i'm being a little hyperbolic to make a point but i really thought the film there's a lot of practical effects there's some creatures um there's a one scene where uh the the female lead sort of does an acrobatic thing that's very creepy yeah um you know, so there's a there's a lot there's a lot of various like reality coming apart, strange stuff in this. But I think to me, really, it's the it's the portrait. We follow a man who loses his mind. And you can say that's because the old gods did get to him or he's just nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would have been more interesting to to really delve into you know what's going on with sam neil's mind and mm-hmm. sam neil is not an actor that i think real really naturally lends himself to letting you see the depths he wears a very handsome uh british uh, the kind of buttoned up you know yes yeah, a, a facade of control Mm-hmm. which works great for this character but i would have loved uh john carpenter to be like all right now in this scene i really want to see that starting to crack mm-hmm. let's 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 stay with this a minute and we'll just start to see the threads of your sanity coming loose you know and i hungered for a little more because sam neil can do that i'm sure oh, yeah. he's a great actor uh i just hungered for a bit more of that a bit less of the slimy creepy crawlies uh because the slimy creepy crawlies are cool but i really thought the thesis of the film was like what does it look like when a guy loses his mind in this context and i wanted to see more of that does that make mm-hmm. sense yeah yeah what, yeah i totally get that what are some of the things that bring keep bringing you back to this movie you've seen it more than once it's uh i mean i think this film is so I'm a big John Carpenter fan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we we talked on the last episode, we talked about Innocent Blood, with, which is a John Landis film. And I said, you know, there were a couple of classics that John Landis made. And the same with Carpenter. He, he directed The Thing, which we've covered on this podcast. And there are some elements of this, a little bit of the design of the creatures and things. It kind of, you know, echoes some of what he was doing in The Thing. Um, and I would say the, I think the effects overall on this are very good, you know, Mm -hmm. for a movie from the mid Mm nineties, you know, you, you think like, ah, there's going to be bad green screen or blue screen or whatever, but you know, there's a lot of practical effects. And like you said, with the, with the 
the woman where you know it's almost like the exorcist spider walk thing but where yeah. you know she's turned she turns over and her head and, turns and it yeah, looked, the only the only way they could have done that was some sort of a prosthetic mask yeah because it literally the the performer and it's probably not the actor herself but no but it's super convincing where they they're sort of on all fours and then they kind of turn over and they're upside down but the head is right side up it's yeah pretty upsetting but it's super convincing and um with carpenter so he directed the thing and he directed halloween which is another classic and um he have you ever seen the fog before i i read the fog um, but I have not watched the fog cause I know how it ends. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard. I don't it. know if it's the same. It might be a different Stephen um, King's the fog. So this is, yeah, this was not a Stephen King. Um, uh, this is not a Stephen King story. Oh, maybe it's the thinking mist. of the mist the mist. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So the and fog, no, I don't a, think I have seen the fog. Yeah. I don't think it was a novel. I mean, I think it was, that's what we should do that next month in october that would be a really fun one to i love the the fog is one i've watched a bunch of times it's just very atmospheric but you know he's done some other he directed a lot of stuff but this was probably his last to me his last good movie he did a movie called vampires which is not which was okay but he did um he, he also directed um uh shoot um Man, I can't when we get on camera and on the mic, I can't remember stuff. Escape from New York. Um, he directed, but he also in the in the 90s did Escape from LA, which I've never seen, but it's supposed to be terrible. And you know, so he was a guy that his career was kind of was kind of winding down. But so I, I think this is probably his last good film. Um it's genuinely creepy. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, there's some things that, that play as kind of campy now, but I think that kind of, um, it seems like so often in homages to Lovecraft and not really having read his really any of his stories or any of his books, I don't know how much of this, this covers, but I've always thought the thing of you know, the characters in a small town and they can't escape and everybody there is possessed or a monster or, you know, that's that's the kind of stuff that really scares me because that's almost literally like my nightmares, you know, where you're just being chased and you can't get away and that kind of thing. So I think this film is very effective in in that regard. It's, uh, you know, the the effects are pretty are used pretty sparingly because this was only an $8 million budget. It was yeah. cost 8 million to make for an $8 million movie. It looks incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all there on the screen, uh, but you know, Carpenter knew how to, this is different from the thing in that the thing they show the monsters and, you know, for minutes at a time, Whereas yeah. this, it's a lot of you're seeing something for a second, and then it's cut it cuts away, and you know, the so thing, he, the thing is a masterpiece of horror. Yeah, I, his his remake of the thing is absolutely one of the one of the great horror movies I've ever seen. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I and I would totally. I mean, I've seen it a bunch of times, and and I love it. Um, you know, so this isn't at the level of that, but it's still really well done. And, and like I say, I mean, this is a movie that, you know, so I watched it 
last night as well. And it was pretty late, probably 11 or 12. And it's pretty creepy. I mean, you know, just watching it by yourself. Um, I mean, it's effective in, in the scares. I, I don't know that everything completely comes together with the kind of playing with the thing of, you know, dreams and he's waking up for, from dreams and there's time shifts. And like you said, is he crazy? Is, is this real, you know, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't completely all come together, but, but I think it's entertaining. The relatively low budget makes sense to me. Like on $8 million, it feels a little bit like, okay, we're going to throw, we're going to make a gumbo here. We're going to throw a bunch of stuff in the pot. And, you know, I've got a bunch of scary ideas, but we don't have a ton of budget. We're going to spend the money on these, you know, five things. And then we're going to do some sort of vague zombie makeup. We're going to do some sort of scary shadow jump scares. We're going to do some stuff where he can't leave the town. So he like drives and drives the drives the other direction. And then he's right back where we started. And we're going to do that four times in a row, you know, it, it, and, but, but, you know, he's losing his mind. So who's to say what's like, there isn't a great deal of continuity to it. There are many different ingredients here. They don't seem to cohese and if you wanted to play the yeah but game and defend it you're like oh yeah but there's lots of different books right and that's what he's so he's remembering little pieces of all the different books and that's why it's you're kind of okay but you know it doesn't but 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 when you take it in as a thing it, it's it feels a little bit like an abstract mosaic like there's mm -hmm. a lot of pretty tiles but they don't necessarily, if you have to wave a wand and be like, yeah, but he's going nuts. All right. It still feels a little bit like a cop out. You know, it doesn't feel like there's method to it. It felt like John Carpenter would be like, I am confident that on this money, uh, I can make, um, I can make a movie full of, you know, moments that are effective in their own way. And that will be good enough. And there was, as a viewer, I was kind of like, I'm not saying that's not good enough. I'm saying there's a reason I have never heard of this film before. It just doesn't. It's not a slam dunk. It's not the thing, right? It's not. And the thing wasn't the thing because of the effects. The thing was because it was a very tight concept. Mm -hmm. It was about the relationship of these guys out in this station that knew one among them or multiple ones among them were <laughs> sus, were the killer, right? Mm -hmm. But they didn't know who. So, yes, the effects were revolutionary and really upsetting. Like, I had nightmares about some of the effects in the thing, like the head turning into a, oh, my God. <laughs> oh. But that's not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is they couldn't, these were friends out in this place, and they couldn't trust each other anymore. Yeah, right. And that movie did that so effectively. That all of the, you know, Wilford Brimley, all of the other stuff, all of the effects on it were were just the frosting on what was a really great, really well-baked cake. Mm -hmm. And in this one, it felt like there was a lot of frosting, but the cake was kind of like, oh, he's going nuts. So just go with it. You know what I mean? Is yeah. that Maybe that's too harsh. I don't know. I was tired. I was really tired when I was late. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's a bad synopsis of it. And, and like... John Landis that we talked about with Innocent Blood. Um, Carpenter didn't have any scandals or anything like that, but he um, 
you know, I think he was increasingly having trouble getting money um, to really do films. And this was $8 million budget and it made about $8 million. So it was a flop, um, you know, cause Hey, we, if you make your money back, but you're we, right. when you propel your career forward. Either. Right. When you factor in, uh, you know, uh, advertising budget and all that kind of stuff then you know it probably lost money but plus it's um, a pretty high concept i mean it's mm -hmm. a real thinker you know you have to like okay so there's a horror writer and that's really popular and the collective consciousness is determined you're like right i mean it's a lot i get it but it's not like there's a vampire in the mob it's right. uh, you know it's like this writer is convinced so many people are so into his books that reality itself starts to bend and one skeptic, you know. And you can't sell the, and, you know, famously the thing was a bomb at the time. Yeah. It didn't, and, and this has happened with a lot of Carpenter stuff, you know, it people, uh, and it, it, it came out the same week as ET. So it was doomed, oh. you know, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but it found an audience on home video and on TV. And to yeah. a lesser degree, the same thing has happened with this movie. Right. It's it's kind of a cult classic now. And people, you know, horror fans know it. Right. Um, but it's, you know, it's never going to be at the same level as The Thing or Halloween. because well, that, That's one awesome. of the things that I think is positive about this kind of streaming environment we find ourselves in now is that... Um, like, I mean, the, the thing that leaps to mind is Ace Ventura, right? It had a theatrical release. Nobody went to see that movie, but um, people checked it out uh, on video cassette, VHS, over the weekends. And it was like a huge phenomenon, didn't it? At least one of the movies, did it spurn two sequels? I think just one. But it... But Jim Carrey had a career working on In Living Color, and this made him a movie star. I mean, that yeah. kicked off once the video sales of that movie took off. Look at that period. The Mask, Batman, whatever. Uh, like, there's just... He had a couple of year run there where he must have made at least $100 million dollars. Mm -hmm. on on like big title after big title after big title it's, it's so weird that some of it is timing but i feel like with the streaming thing now if it's good content the sort of rotten tomatoes model kicks in where it's like well the critics are not stupid so let's pay attention to what the critics say but you know the critics don't love it but Everybody else seems to really love it. Maybe I'll check it out. Like I'm already a subscriber and you're like, yeah, I'm okay. It's not Moby Dick, but I really enjoy that. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And yeah. as somebody who's like, look, I definitely, I want to see the next great Oscar winning film. Like I want to see the next great cinema, but I also like to, I, I enjoy cinema and I like popcorn and I don't mind watching an entertainment if it ticks the boxes. Mm -hmm. And this thing back then, like there was just the theatrical release. That's basically what you got. And this thing opened at E.T. I mean, not this one, but the thing did. Yeah. Oh, the thing. Yeah. Yeah. But my point is, is I think that kids today, you know, people today might not realize that once upon a time it was a gamble. You spent a ton of money. Eight million dollars was a small budget, but 
it's still $8 million. Like mm -hmm. you're hoping it makes at least $8 million back and you've got staff, you've got to pay. So you wanted to make 15 baseline, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and, and you just pick a date that you're going to release it and you, you know, you know what else is coming out, but you cross your fingers. Yeah. I don't know what else was out at the time, but, uh, but that seems crazy to me in this day and age, you know, but that's the way it was. You, yeah. you wanted to see a movie. You had to go to a movie theater. And then as you got into the 80s and 90s, you could go to a blockbuster or something. And you could rent it if it was available. Sometimes you'd go to blockbuster and they were they had 20 copies of the movie. And they'd, they'd all been checked out. So you had to yeah, that, another movie you want to watch. That was the worst when you wanted to see a specific film, you know. Um, now, the downside of streaming is so this was not our first choice we were going to watch another Sam Neill film called Possession, right? Which is even less well known than than this movie is. But it actually um, looks great. Like I want to see that movie now. You sent me that yeah. trailer. I was like, that looks scary as hell. Yeah, I've not seen it, but it gets like really good reviews. And so it's like eighty one or eighty two. I think eighty one is when it came out. We couldn't find it streaming anywhere. So that is one of the. Uh, sad things and our buddy tom is is somebody who is really an expert on this but with each new format we get so you know we went from vhs to dvd to blu-ray and now it's streaming there are titles that just get lost you know so as far as i know the only way to see this film is on dvd or, or blu-ray i don't know if it was released on on blu-ray or not but i'm gonna rent it it's, it's you know get a copy of the uh, the DVD sometime because I really want to see it. It looks great, but you know, and it's just, I don't know if it's a rights thing or what, but it's just, it, it must be, it yeah. must be a legal rights thing. You know, who owns the rights to it? Who's going to profit from any kind of, and that gets tied up and, and nobody gets to see it. And that's right. Shame. Yeah. And so there are, I mean, there are literally thousands of, of movies that are never going to make it to streaming, you know, unless you, th there's been a, a thing over the last few years of small companies that release, um, you know, it's almost like vinyl where they release uh, these res lovingly restored uh, Blu-ray copies of kind of underseen films. Um, but some will never, you know, make it to that. So, when you know and how many people under a certain age even have a dvd player or a blu-ray player or anything i don't it's just all streaming you know uh, i don't um, i don't have any optical drive in this house but, yeah i mean you could get one a lot of the gaming systems now will play a you know yeah. i could get one if i need one all of the movies that i've been a part of producing or acting in or both i i, I have the physical media for just because I want to like, you know, none of them, you can't really stream any of them. They're not, they never were big enough projects, but I poured so much of myself into the make. Those are a formative part of my life. Those are like really important parts of my love of film. So I'm like, I have something solid. Like I could, there's never, I mean, there's not in the short term for each of you a time when you can't get something that'll play a DVD. Mm -hmm. Um, so if I ever need to screen one of the movies I was a part of, I could go buy a DVD player or something that'll play a DVD. 
And uh, but the sad thing I is, mean, it's it, it's not as bad as VHS. Right. There is a shelf life on discs as well. Right. That's you know, true. They they deteriorate over time. So you know if you want to, I don't you know if you have a a favorite movie that's never been released on streaming and you have the DVD or the Blu-ray, I don't know if in 20 years or whatever, if it'll still work. It, um, I think it'll, I, they don't, it's not like an ice cube. Right. right. I mean, it doesn't, they're not melting. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. But you know, you play them and at first it's like, Oh, they don't like, it's not like vinyl. It doesn't scratch. Anybody who owned a music CD, they scratch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can, you can mess up. That's oh yeah make it unplayable yeah you had to be careful with them you know yeah you couldn't just throw them around less than vinyl but yeah um it, tom uh the tom you mentioned is tom seymour a friend of ours who's an independent filmmaker and he teaches in new york now uh teaches film but um he has two documentaries um one the first one of which is about the decline of physical media so it's called VHS Massacre, and then he's made VHS Massacre 2. And VHS Massacre 2 is concerned with the sort of streaming service, basically small small film distribution and the way that that's a racket that screws independent filmmaking. Mm -hmm. but the first one is very much about the decline of physical media and people... Closing of video stores. Yeah, who grew up this idea that there were downsides to it. Uh, you know, if there were 20 copies of the thing and you wanted to see that and those 20 were already rented, you didn't get to see it. But the other thing is you bought it and you owned it. You bought a thing, you went out and paid, you know, at that time you could probably spend 20 bucks on a, on a VHS cassette or something. You'd own that thing. So you could mm -hmm. watch that at any time you wanted. Versus now you pay a digital fee for a digital license of a thing and you're just paying for access to something that you have no control over. Like my wife and I have been watching Shit's Creek on Netflix and enjoying it. And I got a notification that says this is going to not be available on Netflix anymore after mm. October 2nd. So I'm like, oh, we got to watch fast because <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know where we're going to get it otherwise, you know? Yeah. And it, it's an interesting point that the content, you, what you're buying, what you're paying your money for is a rental key. You're paying your money for a window of time that you are allowed to view this content that you don't own. You just, you're buying a little access to something. And that's, that's really interesting to think about. And that's what Tom's first documentary vhs massacre deals with I, mm -hmm. I i think of it in terms of like I, we're constantly trying to get rid of stuff our house is fills up with junk of right things we collect and i'm like the clutter makes us unhappy and I, so i don't you don't want to get too marie kondo about it in this conversation but there's a part of me that's like i like that if i want to see a thing i can just be like yeah here's three bucks let me see the thing and then i don't have to deal with where to put it Mm -hmm. but it does make life in that sense. It makes life feel more ephemeral, more, I don't know. I don't know. Well, and you also have the thing of where if you're just renting like old movies like this off of, of prime or Apple or whatever you're, you know, there's that, but we also have the thing of the streaming services where, nobody pays for all the streaming services. So if it's new content, 
or even if it's old stuff that somebody has the exclusive rights to, there's just going to be stuff that you're never going to see, you know, whereas in the physical media days, there was nothing keeping you from, you know, unless your video store just didn't have it, there was nothing from keeping keeping you from getting whatever DVD or, or VHS tape you right. wanted. But, you know? but unless your video store didn't have it was a was a real possibility. If you live yeah. in New York City, you could probably find niche stuff. Right. Um, Blockbuster was going to have just the stuff to but appeal you, to the highest exactly. number of people. You know, if you lived yeah. in Parkersburg, West Virginia, you had Blockbuster, and it was whoever curated. Like Blockbuster didn't have everything. Blockbuster no. had the stuff that they decided they were going to be able to rent, or you know. Not to get too into politics, but if it's a religiously, you know, they they decided this stuff that they thought was appropriate for you to see. And so, but that's not, I mean, in the 1950s, like you couldn't get stuff you couldn't get. If they didn't have it where you were, then you just didn't have access to it. And you probably right. didn't even know it existed. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know that there's a right answer. It is where we are. Right. All of this kind of, we've gotten a little off topic, but it sort of ties into this film because really this is a movie about the media and by media in relation to the film, it is the stuff that is written in the books. The books are the media mm -hmm. the content is the horror writings of this author that apparently are so potent and so widely read. And according to the author whom we see in the film, although you can't really be sure you don't, the Jacob's Ladder of it is you don't, Sam Neill stops knowing what's real and what's not. Like weird stuff happens and he wonders, wait, is this a waking nightmare? Am I losing it? He encounters the author. The author sort of talks about them. It's sort of the old gods. It's sort of the creatures on the other side of the door. Mm-hmm bulging you know mucusy door that like they're they're trying to break through so you don't know what's real like sam neil you don't know what's real in the movie and there's just such a hash of so many different horrors that i think if i went back and rewatched it i don't think this film could be reasonably portrayed as the portrait as just a legit, straightforward portrait of a man losing his mind. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. think viewing of this film that supports, well, Sam Neill is having a psychotic break and we are inside Sam's Neil, Sam Neill's brain as that unfolds. Like, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think that reading stands up in the viewing of it. The view, John Carpenter, the viewing is a pretty much the supernatural is real. And Sam Neill finally comes to loses his mind as he comes to realize, oh, it's all been true, right? Yeah. Do you think they were making any kind of a commentary here on the how horror affects people? You know, that because horror directors and horror writers are pretty sensitive to being uh, labeled as, you know, pulp. When, not just pulp, but just, um, you know, horror in a lot of ways is viewed as just about a notch above pornography by a lot of people in society and, you know, real critics and all of that. And, 
do you think do you think there's any commentary of that that it's like you know horror kind of playing on the idea of horror sort of rotting people's brains i mean sure it's not super in focus it's not mm. super um like if that is a thesis of the film i don't think it's super clearly drawn but i mm -hmm. think you know using the word thesis i think if you were a senior in college and you wanted to write a thesis on it you probably could write an interesting thesis on it i, I would like to see somebody's uh thesis paper on in the mouth of madness i don't know <laughs> i don't know that you would pick this film is why i'm saying <laughs> right i don't think this film is the most effective it's not that deep you know for that i do think horror writers you know stephen king is sensitive about it you know people are like mm horror. like look if you're that's part of the reason why uh, a lot of independent filmmakers and burgeoning filmmakers make horror is it's easy. It's low hanging mm -hmm. fruit. And then that is not to say it is easy to make a good movie just because it's horror. But horror always has an audience. Always, always has an audience. The catharsis is built right into the subject matter. Um, and, But a horror movie can still be well constructed uh can have great characters great relationships it can say something about the human condition i mean what it's one of the common denominators is like a romantic comedy romance comedy horror it's a big primary color of our emotions mm -hmm. and we're certainly any time in 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 the course of human history since film was developed there have been horrifying fears whether it's nuclear annihilation or plague or you know whatever it, it's um it's i think it's easy to make all you have to do is have a cat jump out of a cupboard you set the music up and the person's walking through and then a cat jumps out of the cupboard and everybody goes ah right mm -hmm. I mean, if the goal is to make your audience react horror is pretty low-hanging fruit um but that being said you know the <laughs> I think the thing is is an amazing film. I think there's oh, yeah. a number of uh, of great cinema that is in the horror genre. I don't think horror should be discounted. But like pornography, and I I don't want to get myself in the position of defending quote unquote great pornography. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think that there is there's a fair amount because it's relatively low hanging fruit in terms of a target. Um, there's a lot of like mediocre and crappy horror. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so, so like, like with children's content, you're like, there's just so much bad children's content that if you're like, Oh, I do children's theater, people roll their eyes because most of it is absolutely garbage. People think, well, oh, well, and like you say, a lot of directors, a lot of directors start out with horror because there's a, you know, there can be a pretty high return on investment for it. It's like you said, uh, it didn't happen with this movie, but um, apparently, but a lot of times people, horror movies tend to open well because horror fans will go and see almost anything. And so they, they tend to have a really big opening weekend and then drop way off Yeah, as you know, uh, unless it's, it's really good. And Carpenter is a guy that whether he wanted to or not, which I'm not sure exactly what the answer to is this, but, you know, he got labeled a horror guy just because Halloween was such a gigantic 
for a long, long time, it was the number one independent film. I think, I think like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles like broke the record, but you know, it, it cost whatever it cost and made a couple hundred million dollars, you know? And so basically his career was kind of forever tethered to horror, you know, whether he did Starman, which was, you know, not a horror film, which, you know, I don't think I've ever seen Starman before. Oh, really? I uh, like Starman. Yeah. Jeff Bridges. That'd be one to do sometime. But, sure. and he did, you know, a comedy, a quote unquote comedy with uh, Memoirs of the Invisible Man with Chevy Chase and uh, Daryl Hannah. Um, so, you know, he, I, he tried a couple of times kind of to get away from horror, but, you know, he, he got kind of pigeonholed in that, uh, in that role. But so, uh, Having said all of that, what did you, oh, one thing that I did want to throw in that really stood out to me in this film is how much Sam Neill smokes in this. Yes. He just constantly has a cigarette in his mouth. Yes. And I don't know. And, and also kind of famously, John Carpenter is, I think he still smokes today, but uh, I don't know if, if Sam Neill was or is a smoker, but, and I haven't, I've never been a smoker, so I don't, you know, I don't, I can't tell like if people are kind of faking it or not, but he's just constantly smoking in this. And it's, it's odd to see now because unless you're watching a period piece or, or something like that, you just, people don't smoke in movies anymore, you know? Um, right. I mean, you watch something new when are when are people smoking in films? No, it has definitely, it has definitely changed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he just smokes like almost nonstop in this film. But anyway, so so with all of that, what did what did you think? Would you recommend this? You know, I think if you're a Carpenter fan and you've never seen it, it's worth checking out. If you're if you're using the entertainment litmus test, then I would sort of say, look, if you're in the mood for a Carpenter movie, watch the thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't want to thumbs down this movie. I just think it's not among his stronger films and um if you're a sam neill fan check it out if you know if you're a carpenter fan you haven't seen it check it out there's there are um memorable moments in it for sure but i think the concept is muddy um and it and it on screen it it leaves a kind of a unfocused feel Mm mm-hmm you know, and by the end, this is one of those movies where by the end, he's maniacally laughing as he watches a movie screen and it's supposed to be this chilling thing. And I didn't find it that at all. So it doesn't like watching him finally hit rock bottom and he's insane and the old gods were right and it's spreading everywhere. And I just didn't care. Mm-hmm. So I guess by that litmus test, I'd be like, mm. um, yeah. yeah, for I like it. I mean, a little bit more than than you. Um, like I said, I think this is probably his last good movie. He did some pretty bad stuff after this. He didn't direct a whole lot more after this, but he, he kind of got to a point in his career, and he's publicly said this, where you know they keep making Halloween movies and they make lots of money, and so he gets checks for them, and he's just he loves to play video games and he's basically just like, Hey, I'll just keep collecting checks and play video. You know, he doesn't really care at this, which is kind of awesome. I mean, but, uh, um, I think this movie is entertaining and there's some creepy elements in it. It It's not perfect. 
but um but i like it i, I mean overall it's it's really good effects and i think you know if you're a big horror fan and you like other carpet you know you've seen the the major carpenter stuff um you know this is in that kind of b grade carpenter but but still worthwhile i think and uh one little tidbit um so i don't know if you i don't know if you watch this on a tv or if you watch this on a laptop or what but with prime um you will get on my tv you'll get little pop-ups about the the actors and um so at the very towards the very end there's a a paper boy um that pulls up on his bike and kind of guides him he's lost and kind of guides sam neil uh where to go and i never would have guessed this if it hadn't popped up uh because it, it just didn't look like him but uh that paper boy is hayden christensen <laughs> which i thought was was interesting yeah so, with, marlon you know, somebody, brando marlon brando yeah it was a marlon brando he was uh yeah. method acting as a child hayden um, christensen best known for his role in the mouth of madness exactly yeah uh so i mean you know he's back in the the public eye with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I think he's going to, he's going to be in some more, you know, star Wars stuff. And so I just thought, I just thought that was interesting. I always um, thought that was funny because he's, a, he's a very good actor, Hayden Christensen and those prequels. I mean, what a plum role, but man, they didn't do anything for his, you know what I mean? Like he's so flat in those movies. Yeah. It's, I, but so is, so is Liam Neeson. And well, I, and I lay that at the feet of the director, you know, that's where you get into a discussion of, you know, kind of a, a separate discussion, but how important directors are because, you know, you can watch people who have won Oscars like, like Liam Neeson. Uh, and in one movie, they're amazing. And in another movie, they're terrible. And that has to be the director. You know, and I, yeah. you could almost like, how do you get so little out of Liam Neeson? Like he's just George. such a big, you can almost take after take, you know, George oh. being like less, give me less, less, <laughs> even less. And just you're in line in a flat monotone with dead eyes. And All right. Well, I don't think we're ever going to, that was close, but I don't think we're ever going to get it. <laughs> and you and McGregor and Natalie. Why did you, Portman. why did you hire, you know, I mean, he's a, you Let have it. all these great actors, you know, Natalie Portman and Ewan McGregor. And, you know, we saw not to rehash all of that, but uh, in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, Ewan McGregor is acting as it's better than in the prequels, yeah. you know. Yeah. And with you don't have to watch the prequels. Just watch the uh, setup like the previously on at the beginning yeah. of Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's more compelling than all three of the prequels. And I'm like, did they reshoot some of this stuff? Because I'm like, this is actually really good when you chop it together like this. <laughs> and with Hayden Christensen, you know, he, uh, uh, you know, people, because of those movies weren't great, they thought he sucked. And in, uh, I, I don't know if you saw any interviews with him and you and you and McGregor or anything, but he just seems like an incredibly nice guy. So I, I think it's nice that he's been, a, I'm sure he was doing fine, but, uh, that, you know, he's had kind he of, got paid. You know, yeah, yeah. He got, not, nobody, they didn't take a bath on the Star right. Wars prequels. <laughs> yeah. He's all set. I think. 
Yeah, but I but I do think it's nice that you know he's uh, able to have kind of this resurgence because he he seems like a really good guy. So, but yeah, so you know I would I would recommend uh, in the mouth of madness you know to people who are really hardcore horror fans who've not seen this this has become kind of a cult classic and and it's definitely creepy and has really good effects and um you know is is pretty effective overall so jeez chris and chris talk movies at gmail.com that's our handle we are on the socials please like and subscribe thank you so much for yes. joining us on our little chats about films um i don't know do have we talked about what we're doing next we talked about uh is it the northman or the oh, norseman that's, i uh oh that's a great question um <laughs> we should probably figure that out uh i saw that it was available for streaming it's, it's on hbo or something now isn't it or hulu or yeah I, I definitely saw that it's you can watch it free somewhere well free the northman northman robert eggers oh baby robert eggers i've heard it's it's cuckoo birds mm-hmm like crazy violent and crazy crazy. I mean, I'd be down for that next if you uh all right. If Let's you want to do it. Northman and buckle your seatbelts because yeah, so that's a new one. And and we yeah, you know, as we say, we spoil these. So if you want to get ready for the next episode, then watch this. What's it on? Uh it is on. It is on. Sorry. And while you're looking for that, In the Mouth of Madness, I don't think is streaming anywhere other than, you know, you can pay to watch it on Prime or or maybe Apple or whatever, but it's yeah. not, on, it's not did, like it's on Hulu or... This is not the definitive answer. It looks like you can rent it from Apple. You can rent it for six bucks. Okay. So I'm pretty it? sure it's on... Peacock subscription. So if you subscribe to Peacock, maybe it's there. Maybe that's where I saw it. So I I have pe peacock. So. Uh, well, either way, it's a new. It came out in April, I think, of of 2022 this year. So mm -hmm. yeah, so it's definitely thank you, you. Know, pretty new. And but the lighthouse, the witch, and I think that's it for him. Really, and and the Northman is his third film. I think so. Not another one. Hmm. Anyway. I'm a fan of both of those other movies. Oh yeah. He's definitely an interesting director. You know, there's no there's no doubt about that. Uh Robert Eggers. Um director. The Witch, The Lighthouse, and Northman. Yeah, those are only he uh, prior to that he directed some shorts. So yeah, this is his third film. All right. So if you want to watch The Northman and you don't mind spending a few shekels on it, I'm going to because I don't think I do subscribe to Peacock. But um, okay, I don't know. Maybe there's a free trial or something. Who cares? Uh, we will. Anything else to add? No, I think that's it. We will talk to you all next week.